This episode is sponsored by the International Center for Spinal Cord Injury. Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Mine did. On August 5th, 2015, I got the call. You know what I mean. The call you hope you never, ever get. It was about four o'clock on a beautiful but scorching hot summer day. I was driving back from the beach in Cape May, New Jersey. We spent our summers there as a family, my husband and I, and all five of our kids. The kids have had various summer jobs over the years, from busing tables at the beach club, waiting tables at Uncle Bill's Pancake House, to bar backing at the Lobster House. I was on my way back to Baltimore for an emergency mediation. I'm a mediator. I was about 45 or 50 minutes into my drive in the New Jersey countryside, noticing the fruit and vegetable stands that dotted the roadside of the tiny towns that sprang up out of the stretches of deep woods and farmland I passed, driving through the back roads of the Garden State, when I got the call. Hello, Miss Empt? Yes, Miss Empt, Miss Davis. It's Archer, Miss Sempt. What, what about Archer Davis? He's in an accident, Miss Sempt, in the ocean. What, what, what do you mean an accident, Davis? We don't know, Miss Sempt, but we, we think he broke his neck. Diving in the ocean. Bro- broke his neck? <laughs> what does that mean, Davis? We don't know, Miss Sempt. A helicopter's coming to take him to Atlantic here. Atlantic City. Atlantic City, Miss Sempt. Meet us, Miss Sempt. Atlantic City. I gotta go. Wait, wait, Davis. Wait, can he, can he move his arms? No, Miss Sempt. Can he move his legs? No, Miss Sempt. Can he talk? A little. Is he breathing? Yes. Hurry, Miss Sempt, meet us. Wait, where am I going? Atlantic City, Miss Sempt, Atlantic City. Click. And with that one call, our lives changed forever, dramatically, in the blink of an eye. Archer. Archer is one of our five children. He's one of our four sons, fourth child from the top, then age 17, a rising junior in high school, six foot two, strong athlete in two sports, gifted portrait artist, a darn good short order cook a straight-A student, just one of those kids who's good at just about anything. I mean, he wasn't always an angel. He was a normal kid, though, a good kid. He was working at the beach club that summer as a short-order cook. Here are parts of two interviews, which I'll post later for you. You'll hear from Davis Barsby, 
the assistant manager at the Beach Club that summer, and Jackie Schmucker, who worked with Archer, running food from the kitchen. Jackie was 15 years old, and Archer had just turned 17. Um, he'd make like chipotle chicken cheese steaks, throw in a, a different ingredient than we usually would, you know. Archer put his headphones in and just listen to music and just wreck the whole order. Or not wreck, but like wreck the day and just completely make everything perfect. Would be solving Rubik's Cubes and reading books, just playing games. Like, I'm sure you've heard the story with the bacon. He'd always try to see how many pieces of bacon he could line up on the grill and it, he would always count me. I'd walk in the kitchen to like grab a paper towel roll and he'd be like, Jackie, I have like uh, like 56 of them now. And I'm like, that's so sweet. That's the very number that came to my mind. Oh, really? That's crazy. That, that I just summer. made that number up. I guess it's drilled in my head. Archer would come on and be like, 56. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would, he would keep a track. He made the extra. Everyone knew. And I loved it. Like, his bacon was the best. Like, he was a great cook, too. Yeah, he was good at what he did. He was. He was good at a lot of things. He's so good at everything, honestly. So much fun. I still mess with him. You know, in that kitchen in August, early August, end of July, where it's just the hottest part of the year, basically, um, and you're working over a hot grill, which he loved to do. He didn't want to run food. He wanted to cook food. And that kid was good. Yeah. He would make food. He'd get all excited about something. He'd bring it in. We would, you know, either be like, this is amazing. Or we'd bust his balls a little bit. Like, this is terrible. Get this trash out of here. <laughs> you know, um, he was so excited to, to do that. But when you're going back to it, when you are in that kitchen and it's, 115 degrees yeah it was definitely like a heat advisory total melt everything was it was hot it was hot as they worked in the hot kitchen archer was cooking on a hot grill all day with no breaks that week we were in a heat spell the temperature even on the ocean was pushing 100 degrees and it seemed that everyone in Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey had flocked to the beach sometime that long week for the respite. You know, it's kind of crazy as I look back. Archer had been looking forward to that cool dip all day. That morning, before he left the house for work, I was downstairs making coffee for him. I noticed he wasn't wearing his long khaki pants he usually wore every day to protect his legs from the hot grease splatters from the french fry cooker. Good morning, sweetheart. Hey, Arch. What, what's going on today? How come you're in board shorts? Ma, he said. It's hot as balls in that kitchen. When I get off the grill, if Rocky lets me, I'm going to take a cool dip in the ocean. Archer walked out our kitchen screen door with a sharp snap as the door hit the frame. For some reason, I followed him and watched his long, lean body hop on and straddle his beach bike, which had been left in the yard. Coffee mug in one of his hands, while the other steered the bike down our bumpy clamshell driveway. I watched him as he rode away, and I called out, Hey! Be careful, you're gonna spill your coffee. Still riding, he turned that long torso and looked back at me, stretched up like a cocky peacock, took both hands off the handlebars and grinned, giving me two thumbs up, coffee still in hand as he coolly glided off. 
He gleamed in the morning sunshine, his baseball cap and thick sun-bleached hair, riding away on his faded red beach bike. <laughs> I laughed. That kid. It was a sweet moment. It's hard to believe. It was the last I would see him moving free. That phone call. Life changes in the blink of an eye. Has there been a time when you or someone you know got such a call? Or maybe, I mean, maybe it's a thought that has crossed your mind once or twice when you hear someone else's bad news and you say to yourself, oh, thank God, it's not my child. You know, or maybe you think to yourself, I don't know what I'd do. Or, or maybe it's more of a, I'd rather not even think about it. Yes, you know the call I'm talking about. It comes out of nowhere, unexpected, never prepared for, never in your wildest dreams, and it changes everything. Here is my story of what unfolded for our teenage son, who became paralyzed that day from the neck on down, they say for life. I still don't believe that, but it is true. He is a quadriplegic. What they call in medical parlance, a C4 burst quadriplegic complete. It has been five years to the day since that day. As a family, it's taken a long time for everyone to accept and get in the groove of our new reality. As a family, we have survived. We are still intact. What I'm sharing now are actual text messages and notes and unedited daily updates I wrote in real time, which I sent to my family daily to keep them updated and which were later posted on Facebook. Over 50,000 people read them and joined me and us on the daily fight to keep Archer alive and the journey of life and death. The interviews are taking place now, five years later, and are threaded into the story. So you will hear others' voices and their experiences, those who played some of the main parts in my story. What they and now you were part of is a shared collective experience of what it is like to stay hopeful. You see, as I look back, but also what I was acutely aware of then, was that I needed other people. I needed them to sustain me and by extension to sustain Archer and my family. The desire was to stay emotionally connected. The struggle was about sustaining our belief in what was possible to stay hopeful. When Archer's body couldn't sustain itself or when his will could not be summoned, we had to breathe our life breath into the unfolding of a creative miracle that I knew lay within him all that time and that lies within each of us, even though none of us knew then or even know now exactly what that creative miracle will look like. It was a plea for a miracle for Archer, but it became a plea and a miracle for us all. When you believe something good will happen, it does. 
when a collective group of people believes together that something good will happen. You can move mountains because you become aligned with something greater than yourself. What you wish for or pray for, though, is not always what you get. Thank you. Thank you for joining me now on this journey of advocacy and of hope. It's really a story of staying connected and interconnected and staying intact and whole, even though (laughs) there are no fairy tale endings. But what we do have maybe is better than a happily ever after ending. And there are many precious moments that have felt happily ever after life. I'm inviting you to join me living the highs and the lows, some of which are euphoric and some of which feel like despair. And find your own fresh discoveries of the meaning in your life, little epiphanies of knowing, as if the thought is totally brand new of our ability to care for each other and to receive each other's care. It's real and enduring. Yes, there are still times when a small unexpected trigger will still set off a wave of sadness that I feel as a momentary sting in my eyes from a welling up of hot tears. Like seeing a little blonde-headed boy in his soccer uniform intensely kicking a ball. Or mm, a little boy in a lacrosse uniform toting a big lacrosse stick three times bigger than his little body, wearing a helmet that makes him look like a bobblehead. Oh, that sweeps me away into a flash of deep sadness, and I just don't know where it comes from. But it is still there. It it just doesn't sweep me away for too long now. It's taken me four years of somatic experience counseling, trauma counseling, acupuncture, dream work, and working with a naturopath and nutritionist to be able to reshare with you these unvarnished writings. It's crazy because as a family mediator, I've been working with people experiencing deep loss and teaching them how to deal with conflict and sometimes trauma for over two decades. But when I had to bring it home and apply it to my own trauma, it was hard work, inner work, deep work. But it's been worth it and has allowed me to live fully again. Loss, it's hard. And as for my sharing the story with you now, The story now includes so many others whom I want to introduce you to. I mean, the extraordinary people behind the scenes of the Archer blogs. And you will also meet others with what I now call trauma to epiphany stories. As together, we discover new meaning and resiliency we didn't know we had. So if you might be experiencing your own trauma, crisis of any sort, or deep loss, or just the thought of what if, or please, Lord, don't let that happen to me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Perhaps 
This story will help you advocate with the purpose of a warrior and the heart of a peacemaker as you make peace with whatever raw reality you might be faced with. Or perhaps it will help you to help someone else on their journey. Either way, I hope each episode will lift you up and remind you of how precious your life is and to be renewed in your belief in yourself and in your capacity to believe in what is possible that you cannot see and that you are never alone. So let's return to August the 5th, 2015, what I think of as day one. The person who placed the call was Davis Barsby, the assistant manager of the beach club at the time, on lifeguard duty that day. I thought you might want to hear from Davis directly, what it was like for him that day. This is only a piece of the larger conversation, which we'll post later. Uh, because it was you who made, you know, what I call now like the call to me. And I, I can't imagine what that was like. And I uh, The call was definitely something no one wants to do. Um, but knowing that I had a connection with you, um, it wasn't something I thought twice about. I got on that phone and, and gave you the worst news you could possibly ever receive in your entire life. And I remember him just yelling, I can't feel, I can't feel my legs. I can't feel my arms. I think I went crazy after getting the call. Actually, I know I did. It's a bit of a blur what happened between the call and seeing Archer. I do remember everything about the call from Davis, and I remember very clearly some things. But generally, I lost a few hours of memory, sort of like going fuzzy, like I couldn't see or think straight. I was in my car driving. Records show that I called Billy at 4.03 p.m. Billy's my husband, <laughs> 36 years. Text records show I sent one text at 4.09. You might be asking yourself, what would I have done getting a call like that? Well, I was out of it. I couldn't figure out where I was. I was already on a rural highway, unfamiliar to me because I'd been rerouted to a different exit off the Garden State Parkway due to new construction that summer. And maybe exit 13. I was on a winding country road, passing through the heavily wooded areas that bordered farmland. My GPS had me in circles. I kept hitting the MapQuest button on my phone over and over. It was like resetting and getting stuck and telling me to take lefts and rights. And it was like a compass that was going haywire. It was sending me in circles. I mean, I was literally driving my car in circles. I knew I had to get to Atlantic City, but I couldn't figure out how. I knew I had to go north. I'd never traveled that way before. I felt frenetic. And then my GPS just stopped. I thought I'd broken it. I couldn't figure it out. I was so lost. As part of my looking back to make sense of all this, 
I know now. In fact, I had no internet connection. Common in the woodsy part of the New Jersey country backroads. I really don't know how, nor do I even remember going east to go north and getting on a highway. I do remember entering the city limits of Atlantic City. As a look back, that meant I had to have taken one or two rural roads for about 40 minutes, then gotten onto the Garden State Parkway, paid a toll to get on the new highway, then taken an exit off the parkway to Atlantic City and traveled about another 20 minutes under normal circumstances from where I think I was when I got the call. But I just have no memory of that time. As I entered Atlantic City, all I saw were glittery digital billboards and blinking garish showtime lights. Even in the bright glare of the August sun, it looked like Oz. Fascinating and scary. I remember desperately scanning for one of those roadway signs that said hospital, emergency. You know, the ones that are blue with the white H that we, you know, learned about in driver's ed. I do remember desperately wanting to be with my son. Like, like my heart was driving while my eyes were scanning. I was in tunnel vision to get there. Laser sharp tunnel vision to see Archer. I don't remember how I got to the hospital, but I do remember spotting the blue signs with the white H. They were like reaching out to me, like they were vibrating large. And I saw them and I followed them through the city. I remember seeing the building and scanning for a sign, hospital. I pulled up my car to the front door and ran in. Is this the Atlantic City Hospital? A man at the front desk told me, ma'am, is that your car out there? You can't park there. You can park on the street if you can find a space or you can park in the garage. I was a crazy woman. I remember like getting back in my car and going around the block, scanning for a space like a hawk for a mouse or something. I mean, there was none. And then I was looking for some garage. I was looking for signs like my life depended on it. Hospital parking. I entered a large parking garage with a booth that looked empty. I remember the parking arm would not go up to allow me in. And so I threw the car in reverse to back out. And then I drove around the booth into the oncoming lane. I drove steadily straight into the garage. It was packed. I was scanning for a space. I remember feeling a lot of pressure that I might not find a space and scanning for where I would park anyway. I wedged my car into a corner, not really a space. I was scanning. I was on the second floor, second floor. I needed to remember where I parked. I scanned and saw a glassed-in entryway. I ran towards it. It led to a glassed-in walkway, like a, like a bridge over a street. I was walking fast and scanning. I was scanning for any sign. Hospital. Get to the hospital where Archer is. Was I at the right place? I got to the other side and pushed through two more doors. It felt like a basement or something. I mean, there was a desk. There were two people. They were in security guard uniforms. I mean, that seemed off. Was I in the right place? Can you tell me, is this where my son will be? He's coming on a helicopter. Who's your son, ma'am? One guard replied routinely. Archer, 
Archer Sempt. He's been in an accident. Is he here? Is this the hospital? I could hear the tapping of clicks on the computer. Third level, ma'am. Third level. I glanced wildly around the area. Elevators are down that hall, ma'am. I remember walking slowly down that quiet hallway. Was I in the right place? I was surveying everything, trying to take in where I was and how I could backtrack to get out of there. If it was wrong, it felt empty. I recall the walls, the color of paint, the floor. As I walked to the elevator, I pushed a button on the elevator. It was all in slow motion. The doors of the elevator opened and I stepped on. I remember being so focused, third level, third level. I pushed the elevator floor button. I felt the elevator lift me to the next floor. As the doors to the third floor opened, I stepped out and looked around. I remember seeing people and began asking, is my son here? Is this where my son is? Is Archer Zempt here? I think someone told me to take a seat. I knew I was going out of my mind. I think I asked multiple times, is, is this the hospital? Is this Atlantic City? Am I in Atlantic City? Please tell me. Is this where my son is? He's coming. He's coming on a helicopter to Atlantic City. I remember falling to the floor on my knees. Oh, God. Please have mercy on our family. Please, God. Please have mercy. Please. Please, God. That was rough. That was a rough phone call. Probably one of the worst phone calls I've ever had in my whole life. Yeah, I'm sorry that you had to make it. Oh, I'm happy to. Um, you know. Yeah, uh, sorry. This is so, that's so emotional. I haven't thought about this in, in, in for so long. And you try to push back these memories. And they all just come flooding back like that. In the blink of an eye, Archer's life and all our family's lives were changed forever. Everything changed just like that. Everything changed just like that. One call, one event, one piece of news, crisis, trauma, loss, deep loss. The rug pulled out. It can happen to any of us. That's just it. It can happen to any of us. And it does. Has anything like this happened to you or someone you know or someone you love? Have you ever received one of those calls? I hope not like ours, but you might have. Or you might have received some devastating news about someone or something you cared about deeply. When it happens, it's like, you know, you know, like, you know, something is really bad and it's happening to you, but you have no idea really until years later, just how much your life has changed profoundly forever. You do the best you can. I think it takes years. When you look back, a hard look back, years later, unpacking the details, 
you realize how much your life has been shaped by that defining moment. It probably made you who you are today, one way or another. It might have even made you better, made you stronger. If you're lucky, it might have even made you more vulnerable in a good way, more open, more aware, more grateful, more faithful, more hopeful, more generous. My trauma to epiphany story began with one call. How about for you? If you have a trauma to epiphany story, please write me, blink of an eye at funnelradio.com. Let us be grateful for the life we have and let us hope for everything. Oh, life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Join Louise Fipsemp next time for Episode 2, He Talked with God. The International Center for Spinal Cord Injury is designed to provide new hope for individuals with spinal cord injuries and paralysis. Through our unique philosophy of hope through motion, our activity-based restorative therapies and medical management help children and adults regain sensation, function, mobility, and independence, even years after paralysis onset. Visit SpinalCordRecovery.org to learn more, or call 888-923-9222. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe via email on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. If you have a story to share, please contact Louise Phipps Sams directly, blinkofaneye at funnelradio.com.